0: The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. you pray with me? Father God, I desperately want to show something to Your people from Your Word. And the reality is that I am in my own flesh and in the powers of my own intellect completely incapable. But Father, if you would work by your spirit to take this word to enlighten the eyes of their hearts and to show it to them, it doesn't matter a whole lot. What's in me as a man what my abilities are as a preacher and so father I'm asking you to do the thing that is impossible with man to reveal yourself as you are in your word and to allow us all together as a family to embrace it and to rejoice father I have great confidence that you will do this because it is to your glory and in the name of your son that we ask it amen So, this morning's sermon is going to be a bit upside down. I think that the text, we of course are continuing through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the first chapter, and we're going to focus in on two very specific petitions that Paul makes on behalf of the people there in verse 18. And I wrestled a lot this week with how to present this text to you. In a way that showed you what I believe is there. And as I wrestled and I wrestled and I, and I wrestled and God took me all over scripture to this one resounding theme that really runs from beginning to end. I realized that I think our best hope of seeing what God is saying to us through St. Paul here in these words. Is to just allow the evidence to mount. to to work through some passages of scripture together and allow God to overwhelm us with this truth. And then we'll come together to the text and it's going to be, I believe, so plain and so clear and so obvious and encouraging to you that the thing just preaches itself. And so first, I do want to read the text together. We will we will read it together, but I just I reckon the reason I'm telling you this is so you don't get alarmed when you realize that 40 minutes in, I'm still in my introduction. This is, this is by intent, okay? So go ahead and stand to your feet, please. And I remind you that this is the inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. For this reason, Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe Father God, would you make this book live to me? And if would you show me yourself, would you show me myself? Would you make this book live to me? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So everyone has particular patterns of speech. You have these these statements that you throw out almost without thinking about them at times. And the people around you, they, they pick up on them. For me, one of those in preaching is, are you tracking I'll say that often, and and it's funny, after the services, when I'll hear from parents that their kids very often under their breath say, Well, no, no idea what you're talking about, man. But when it comes to thinking of the things of God, often you'll hear me talk about ditches. The two sides of the road where we can air and really make a hash of things when we're trying to wrestle with Scripture and understand who God is and who he's calling us to be. You think about it with regards to the way we approach corporate worship. How often do I tell you that we've got to be careful that we don't become so enamored with theology, that we don't become so intellectual and high minded that we forget our heart along the way, that we know a whole lot about God, but we don't know God. That's one ditch. But then there's a ditch on the other side of the road, you see, and that's the ditch which leaves our mind at the door. And just gets wrapped up in emotions and experiences. Now, very often what happens is we find that our car pulls in, in one direction. It, that's that's a, um, it's a helpful thing in golf, for instance, to know where your miss is. Right, If you're a golfer and you know that I always miss to the right, it's, it's helpful to know that you can play some good golf. Knowing I will always miss to the right. The problem, though, becomes when you overcorrect. Now, all of a sudden, you you don't want to miss right any longer. You don't want to miss to the intellectual side of things. And so you overcorrect to the other side. And now, all of a sudden, you're all heart and no mind. Very much, this is the picture of the Christian life. It's trying to keep the thing between the lines. The only way that we have any hope of doing this is through a constant transformation, a constant reformation of our mind and our thoughts and our heart. And, of course, the only place we have any hope of doing this is in the word. We're constantly coming to God's word realizing that there are going to be times when we're going to see statements here that seem to be completely at odds. And so it's our job to come to these two trains of thoughts or these two twin truths that God has revealed to us and just submit to them doing everything we can not to fall into one ditch or the other. This morning we're going to talk about The motivation behind the Christian life. What's meant to be our motivation? What's meant to be the driver behind this thing? What's the end of it for us? Now, the reality is that I see two fairly common ditches, and and one of them is very easy to spot. One of them is often called something like the prosperity gospel or, or name it or claim it or health and wealth. Something like this. It's, it's the gospel that says it's a motivation for this Christian life. Although they'll very rarely come out and say it in these terms. But that a motivation for this Christian life. For following Christ. Is what's in it for me here and now. It's, it's being so enamored with the gifts of this life. Like health and wealth and prosperity. That we fall into this trap of seeing Jesus as nothing other than a means to some other end. And what oftentimes plays out as we look around us, we calling ourselves Christians and followers of Christ, we look around at our pagan, non-believing neighbors, and we realize we're shooting at the exact same target they are. It's just that we've determined that Jesus is the best way for us to get there. you determine that hard work or... Accumulating vast amounts of wealth or giving yourself over to as much schooling as you can get or aligning yourself politically and socially with other influential people. You've determined as the pagan that that's your best path to these riches. I want those same riches, but I see in scripture the promise that I can get there if I will just claim the name of Jesus. Now, sometimes this is incredibly easy to spot because You'll sit in churches or you will sit in groups that call themselves Christian. And that's all they talk about. Just to talk about how we can essentially use Christ for earthly gifts. But it can sneak in at times if we're not careful. We find ourselves relying on the provisions of God rather than truly loving him. So I ask you, lest you think, well, that's not us. We're not the name it and claim it. We're not the prosperity gospel kind of church. I, I do ask you. If you were to sit down and list the goals that you have in this life, the aim of your life, would it be all that different than your neighbor? But perhaps more telling than this, I would ask you, if I were to ask your neighbor. Or your children. Or your accountant. Or the people that know something about your calendar. If I were to ask them if there was something fundamentally different about you. And the aim, the motivator, the driver behind your life, would those people say that they notice anything particularly different, radical, maybe even unnerving to them about the target that you shoot at? So that's that's ditch one. The other ditch I find to be a whole lot more sneaky, and frankly, it's one that I think folks that are like us... uh, theologically minded folks, folks that are always digging in the scripture and trying to do hard things and seeing God and walking in light of what we see there. There's another ditch on the other side of the road. that's much, much sneakier. And I believe that the reason that it's sneakier and, and more tempting for people like us is because it sounds very high minded and, and godly. It's It's a mind that might say, again, without saying it in so many words, but it's a mind and a heart that might say something like this. Oh, I give no thought when it when it comes to following Christ, when it comes to the motivations of this life. I give no thought to what's in it for me. My my motivation is not fear of hell and it's not hope of heaven. I just I just follow God because it's true and because it's right. I don't worry about a payoff. As I was thinking about an earthly picture of what does this look like? Where have we where have we seen a parallel to this or a um, what, what's a good analogy to this? I think the analogy to this is is almost perfect. It's when your grandmother gives you a Christmas card and you know that your grandmother always gives you a couple hundred bucks. But you've got to pretend like you're interested in the card. And so what do you do? You open the card and the money just kind of falls out like and you act like you don't even see the money. And, and, and you read this card that you could care less about. That's the way many of us live our Christian life. Oh, I, I don't know if there's anything in it for us. I don't think about heaven. I don't think about hell. I don't think about rewards. I don't think about pleasures. I don't think about joy. I don't think about satisfaction. I don't think about those such things. You know, I'm a real Christian. I follow Christ out of duty. I'm not going to enjoy it. I'm not going to do it because there's pleasure in it. Now, Again, maybe I'm stating this in the extreme, but beloved, I've fallen in this ditch. I would imagine by your silence that. So I have some of you because it, it sounds so right, doesn't it? it? That sounds like the kind of thing that we're supposed to do because we know that our ultimate aim isn't anything in us. It's always about God. The ultimate aim is the glory of God. It's why everything that is exists. And so, of course, we're not to settle for anything other than God. And the minute that we allow ourselves to take our mind and our eyes off of God and put it on anything else, even the best gifts that do come from him, even the best gifts that he does promise for us, we can be sure that we've missed the mark or that we're not thinking rightly about God as our ultimate gift and not just the giver of those gifts. And it sounds very altruistic. Sounds like the kind of thing that Jesus would teach, doesn't it? Because isn't the whole of scripture calling us to self-denial? To counting others as more significant than ourselves, to not demanding that we get our own own ways, to not following after the desires of the flesh, not even trusting our own heart to tell us what to want. You you realize this. Your heart's a liar. Your, your heart's a liar. And so you, you can't trust your heart to even tell you that that's a thing that's to be desired. And so this sounds very altruistic. But then when you slow down and actually consider what Jesus had to say. Like if you actually study the scriptures for yourself and say, OK, what does God seem to be telling me is meant to be my motivation. What what does God tell me is meant to be the driver behind my obedience and my faith and my worship and every aspect of this Christian world. You'll find out that in actual fact, this idea that we don't chase after joy or pleasures or rewards or satisfaction, that's complete nonsense. It's foolishness. And and here's the the danger. I I see this increasingly with every day as a pastor. As I sit and I talk with people. And we together come to the word of God. And by his spirit, he unfolds things. If I had a dollar for every time somebody said to me, you know, it never really made sense. It, It never really made sense to me that. I could walk down an aisle and just say a little prayer and then magically heaven is mine no matter what the rest of my life looked like. But now that I see in scripture the picture of what actually happens in salvation, the way that whole, that Holy Spirit will cause me to persevere even to the end. Now I see. Now I, now I see how this thing actually works. But before I saw it, I never had any assurance in my life and I never had any joy in worship and I never had any real confidence in my standing with God. You see, there's those That's the beauty in in seeking truth in God's word. That's where our confidence and our comfort and our assurance comes from. I read a quote yesterday. We had a a funeral here for a young lady that passed and uh, had a full house full of young people. And I began that sermon with a quote from C.S. Lewis that says that comfort is the one thing that we can never attain by chasing it. If you chase after truth, you may acquire comfort. But if you chase after comfort, you will find neither truth nor comfort. You'll find yourself with nothing but hopelessness in the end. That that's the way that it is with all things. That when we pursue truth, if we pursue confidence and we pursue assurance and we pursue, pursue comfort and we pursue joy and we pursue all these other things, absent truth, we'll miss all of them. In the end, we'll find ourselves hopeless. Hopeless. And rewardless and lacking all manner of assurance. But when we just follow the truth, when we just come to the word of God and pursue truth, I want to just see you, God, as you are. And then, God, I want you to show me myself as I am, knowing that's going to be real tough. But I know that it's only there that I have any hope of finding all the rest of what I desire. That this is one of those areas that we want to find motivation for the Christian life. We want to find some sense of joy. We, we read through the Psalms and we see a man like King David fleeing from his enemies. And he, he's in, in one breath speaking words about how he has soaked through his pillow at night with his tears. About how his bones are wasting away. And in the same breath saying, and I rejoice in the Lord. It's continuing to worship for men like Job, who can shave his head and sit in dust and ashes, having lost literally everything, 10 children the man lost on one day and yet worshiping God. Those things are only found when we know the truth. They don't come in pursuing comfort, pursuing joy, pursuing any of these things outside the truth of God. And so when we slow down and actually consider the truth of who God is and what he's actually said in his word, you'll find that it's Again, I say absolute nonsense to believe that the pursuit of joy and pleasure and rewards have nothing to do with the Christian life. When you think about what Jesus actually said, I told you earlier that it sounds like the kind of thing that Jesus would say because he said it, that we must deny ourselves. Isn't that what he said? That if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. But the problem, as with so many other texts is we don't keep reading. We read the first part of the text or we take a little bumper sticker because that's all our minds will allow us to memorize or all we're willing to put in the time to memorize. We don't bother reading the rest of the text. So Jesus looks to these men and he says, it's going to cost you everything to follow me. You must deny yourself and deny your heart and deny your flesh. And you must take up a cross. You must take up this, this, this symbol of death and of judgment and of torture. And you must... Come and you must follow after me. But right after that, he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. What's the motivation here? Is the motivation just a bunch of sad sackery? I've invented that word just now. Walking around like a sad sack with your head down. Just I'm doing my duty. I'm marching to Golgotha with Jesus and it's nothing but death and it's nothing but sorrow and it's nothing but self-denial. He says, no, it's the pursuit of gaining life. It's the pursuit of something. Jesus, speaking to the rich young ruler, Jesus looked at him and he loved him and he said to him, you lack one thing, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And so the man was sad because I think that's all he heard of what Jesus said. Jesus looked at the man, and this man who had great wealth, and you remember the humility that this man had as he came and he approached Jesus and he knelt down at his feet and he says, I want, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, There's one thing you lack. You must sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. The man was very rich, and so he went away sad. I think it's because he didn't actually believe the next line that Jesus said. And I wonder if you even remember what he said next. Did he just say, Give everything away and follow me in poverty, and that's all that ever awaits you? He says, you lack one thing, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. He was telling the dude, trade up. For once in your life, trade up. Grab hold of greater treasure. That's what you really want. Don't listen to your heart. Don't believe your eyes. Don't believe your friends. Believe me, you kneel and you call me Lord. If I'm Lord, if I am Master, If you can trust me, then you can trust me to tell you what is best. My treasure is best. Let go of the rest. But that's the motivator. Do you understand? I want you to think about the Sermon on the Mount. Is is Jesus unfolding what the Christian life is meant to be? And he's taking us into some deep, deep waters. Speaking of similar things, Matthew 6, verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Again, that's just where we stop sometimes, right? So, when I give, I don't need to let you people know what I give. I don't even so private am I in my giving that my left hand doesn't even need to know what my right hand is doing? And so, you would expect Jesus to say, "And honoring God, that's that's reward enough." Doing what's right in secret and never anybody finding out. That's just your duty as a Christian. But that's not what he says. He says, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. What's meant to be the motivation here? The reward of the father. Do you understand? That's a far cry from duty, isn't it? That's a far cry from give, 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 and have no expectation of anything in return. Beloved, you realize that God will be a debtor to no man, right? There is never a man, no matter the depths of what he has given to God, there has never been a man that could stand before him and say, boy, I have outpunted my coverage here. It is all minus in my ledger because I have given and I have given and I have given with no expectation of anything in return. That's not it. You continue to go through this chapter, chapter 6 in Matthew 6. He talks about the same thing with regards to giving and prayer and fasting. Every time, your Father in heaven will reward you. You think that's important to Jesus? You think that's an important motivator to following him through the fires of suffering? My father will reward me. He sees and he knows and he'll reward me. How many times does Jesus speak about storing up treasures, laying up treasures in heaven? Do do you think that these are just add-ons that pastors came and scribbled in in order to cause people to be more obedient? Because it can't always be the stick, right? I can't always just beat you with the, with the thread of hell. And so there's got to be some carrot that I'm going to dangle out there. These aren't my words. These are the words of Jesus. These are the promises that he was making. He says in Luke 12, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What's the motivation here? God's going to give me the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. With a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. This is our motivation—a greater treasure, greater reward, that which can't be stolen or, or or degraded or eaten up by bugs and moths or time or rust. And this isn't just with regard to spiritual disciplines. This this isn't just with our giving. This isn't just with our fasting. This isn't just with our praying. It's with the whole of life. So it isn't just that we come in here on Sunday morning and we say, we're going to do these spiritual things now. We're going to do these Christian things now. And there's going to be a plus on the other side of the ledger that God's going to reward and he's going to have treasure and he's going to give us joy in response to this. It's for the whole of life. It's your motivation in all that you do. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, he's speaking to slaves with regards to their masters. Everything that you do out in the world, whatever you do, work heartily, is for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. That this is the picture. The chasing of rewards. The hope of an inheritance. Again, I tell you, not joyless duty. Have you ever fallen in that ditch? The way that you know that you fall in this ditch is coming to this place or reading this word or walking out the Christian life It becomes nothing but darkness. A constant fist fight. The fist fight is to believe and to rightly see the rewards. The fight that you ought to be fighting isn't how can I make myself do these things I hate? For so many people, that's what they think it means to be spiritually mature. They look to men like the Apostle Paul. They look to the, to the heroes of the faith. They look to whoever it is that they count as, as a spiritual giant in their life. And they think that the secret to that man's life is he learned to eat his vegetables and hold his nose. How did that man learn to do these things that are so awful? How does that man do these things that bring him no joy? But that's not the fight. The fight isn't to get yourself to do things that you hate doing. The fight is to see the joy that waits us on the other side. To see and believe the promises of God. So that then we can do these things and count it all as joy. There's a man called Jonathan Edwards. the One of, if not the greatest theological mind. Short of the Apostle Paul, I suppose, and he, he wrote, I would encourage you to go look him up. I think it was, I think it was uh, 70 resolutions that he wrote out as a very, very young man. He, he wrote out these resolutions for himself, and it's a good thing to do. Um, and he read them once a week, if I understand correctly. Once a week, he read these, I'm resolved to do these things. And they were a reminder of what is the aim? What is the motivator? What is the focus of my life? And then he. He prayed by the power of God that he would give himself over to these. And one of Jonathan Edwards resolutions, it's number 22, if you care. He says this, that he resolves to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can with all the power, might, vigor, vehemence and violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. I'm going to read that again. He resolved to endeavor to obtain for himself as much happiness in the other world as he possibly can with all the power and might and vigor and vehemence and violence that he is capable of or can bring himself to exert in any way that can be thought of. This man woke up and he chose violence, not violence against others, violence against his flesh in pursuit of what happiness. I'm going to be a man so radically devoted to my own happiness that I'm going to devote my life to it with as much vigor and exertion and violence as this little brain can think of. That's the true prosperity gospel. And he didn't come up with this on his own. Again, I tell you, he found it from the lips of Jesus. So I ask you, when was the last time you sat and motivated on happiness in Christ? When's the last time you went to God in prayer and you said, God, just cause me to find my joy in you. Show me the treasure that you have promised and cause me to believe it, to value it more than the things of this world. Or do you find yourself living with nothing other than a dreaded sense of duty? I think that the reason I don't think I, I know. It, it's the reason this thing becomes so difficult. There, there's a couple of reasons that this thing is is so difficult. One of those things is we've got the taste buds of a six-year-old. I love, oh, I can't say this. I think I can say this still. I love who Bill Cosby used to be before all the bad stuff, okay? Like, I love the Bill Cosby comedy records, and I used to listen to those as a little kid. I used to love the Bill Cosby uh, What's it called? The Cosby Show, I guess. And I'll I'll never forget there was an episode where he took Rudy and her friends to this fine dining restaurant and they all wanted burgers. And the guy brings out these big old juicy, delicious looking sourdough burgers and they wanted flat smush McDonald's. The problem is we've got the taste buds of a bunch of children. We have so dulled our senses to the trash of this world. That we can't even we can't even salivate at the promise of real treasure. We can't even get excited at the promise of prime rib and fine wine and whatever comes with a with a good meal. In the words of C.S. Lewis, we're far too easily pleased. We're so di- distracted by the by the stuff that's that's here. What? That was that was some pastoral self-control you just witnessed. That was <laughs> in case you're wondering. I didn't stroke out there. I had I was <clears throat> maturity is set in. We've got we've got these dis- disordered affections. That's what it is. God has given us the desire for things and we settle for the dung, the, the trash, the dirt. Of this earth. But I think there's another thing that makes it very difficult. So there's two sides of it, right? We're so enamored with the stuff of this world, right? This food is awful, but there's a lot of it. This food is awful, but it's easy to get my hands on. And so I just so fill my belly with this, I can't even think about that. So part of it is my affinity for the things of this world. But the other part is my mind can't even imagine the things to come. What does the Apostle Paul say? What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. This is the same Apostle Paul that says, speaking of himself, I'm fairly confident, speaking of himself, he says that he was swept up into the third heaven. He was taken up into paradise. And he says, I can't even utter, I can't even explain what was there. I think in part because there's no human language to give expression to it. You go and you think about, what John saw in his vision, and and he's talking about stuff. If you've ever seen these artists that will that will draw like like draw literal pictures of what the scriptures say an angel looks like, it's it's bizarre. It's not beautiful, but the guy's saying it's beautiful. And you begin to realize there's just not language for this. There, there's not human words or expressions or pictures that they can give us to give us an idea of this. And I think beyond this, because if they could, our, our brains would explode, our, our hearts would, would just burst. I told you before, I think that's part of why we've got to have powerful bodies. I understand why we've got to have glorious bodies, and I understand why we've got to have honorable, honorable bodies in, in eternity, and I understand why we've got to have um, eternal bodies that can't die, but why do we have to have powerful bodies? I believe that we need powerful bodies that they can bear up under the pleasures of eternity. And so I I think that part of the problem here is not just that we're so in love with the trash of this world, it's we can't even envision the glories of heaven. We can't even envision or or, or wrap our mind around the, the, the pictures that lay ahead of us, but God keeps running them out there, right? Because after Paul says, no eye has seen, no heart has conceived, these things he does say though, these things God has revealed to us Through his spirit. That God doesn't leave us completely absent a picture. He doesn't look to us and say. Well you're just going to have to trust me. You're a child. You wouldn't understand how good this is. You just have to trust me. No he says by my word. And through the working of my spirit. I'm I'm giving you signs and pointers. And pictures and, and tastes. Of what it's going to be like. You maybe notice that I've begun to talk. in some. Similarity to that with regards to the Lord's Supper, that it's, it's a taste of heaven as we come in, and, and we get just a morsel in the presence of Christ. And he, and he meets us here. So he, he hasn't left us with with no witness and with 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 no idea. But I think that sometimes those pictures can be so faint. And the reality is that we starve ourselves of it again, because we don't sit and meditate on rewards in heaven because in part because it's. That's on pastors like me because we don't preach about it. We preach all about duty and very little about real reward. Or the rewards we run out are fool's gold. For the stuff of this world. Very seldom do we stand and we talk about reward and treasures and true joy in eternity. And so we, we starve ourselves of any hope of seeing it. Or we come to the scripture and it's so hard to see and so hard to think about it that we throw up our hands and we just, we just give up. But beloved, I'm telling you, that's exactly what is meant to motivate the Christian life. My grandfather, um, good, good Christian man, loved God and loved people. And we um, got a couple of gifts from him when he when he passed away. One of them is my wedding ring. Um, this was not his original wedding ring, but it was one that he wore in, in the end. It's got to this fish on it, which is obviously very, uh, um, very meaningful. But um, anyway, so. My wedding ring is now his wedding ring or his wedding ring is now my wedding ring. And another thing I inherited from him um, was his Bible. And it's I don't know that my kids are ever going to want to go back and look through my notes. I hope they will someday, because you can learn a lot about a man by looking at his looking at his Bible and the notes that he's taken and the texts that are meaningful to him. There's a note, though, in the very back of his of his Bible. And it's um, it says from the desk of Bob Seal. And it says that some people are so busy looking forward to eternity that they forget to live beautiful, fruitful Christian lives here and now. With all due love and respect, I think he's missed it. I think the only way that you live fruitful and meaningful and Christ exalting lives here and now Is you do fix your heart on eternity. Now, now to be clear, the apostle Paul did say to those around him, look, you don't just sit around and hunker waiting for Jesus to come back and don't go feed your family. That's not what that's not what living for eternity is meant to look like. But I'm telling you that the more vivid your picture of eternity, the, the more your hope In the joys of heaven, the more you cast your glances on eternal rewards, the more fruitful, the more helpful, the more generous, the more faithful you'll be in this life. That's one of the paradoxes, right? You've heard the phrase, they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. There's no such thing. It's when you've got some caricature of heaven. Or when you try to make this world into heaven, that you become no earthly good. But the more consumed we are with earthly good, with doing things here and now, with no eye to the eternal, I'm telling you, it becomes fruitless. It becomes nothing but Christian duty. I want you to think about the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. That's your homework for the week. I would ask you to go and read through the, the just just what the author there says in Hebrews 11. But, but I want you to do it differently than you normally do it. I think that normally we read through that passage and, and we... Make it all a history lesson of the, the his, it's church history. It's, 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 it's saint history. It's, it's all these people. And I remember what Barak did. And I remember what, I remember what um, uh, Abraham did. And I remember what Moses did. And I remember what these, what, what, what these people did. And then it just becomes a history lesson about all the ways that these men were so mighty in the faith. And instead, I'd like you to read Hebrews 11, looking for motivation. Because the whole purpose there is to tell us how to live. It's not just Oh, look at those Old Testament saints. They had it so bad because Christ hadn't come, but still they persevered. How much better do we have it now that Christ has come? And so you should persevere. He's saying their motivation is your motivation. The same thing that drove them has got to be the same thing that drives you. And and it talks about faith being the assurance of things hoped for and the the conviction of things not yet seen. And it says that these people, they, they walked by faith, longing for a better country. For a heavenly country, they, they walk by faith, trusting in yet unseen promises. And it, and it says they died having not received them. Beloved, you realize that you too die having not received the fullness of your reward. We don't go just because Jesus has come. It's, it's all now. It's not. We too are a waiting and a longing and a looking and a desiring people. That's meant to be our motivation just as it is theirs. That we too live as sojourners and strangers and exiles. This place isn't our home. This world is not our home, so that we're meant to live like these people do, but one, one text in particular, Hebrews 11:26 speaks of Moses. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. He was looking to the reward. I want you to think about all the ways that Moses benefited the whole of Israel. But it says he wasn't looking to the reward of the whole of Israel. It doesn't say he was looking to be a good and faithful servant. What was Moses' motivator? Reward. A greater treasure. He had all the treasure a man could want living in Pharaoh's home. But he says, I will walk in reproach with Christ, looking forward to Christ. I will walk... And consider that worth more than all the treasures of this earth. My motivator is greater. And you, you begin to understand then, perhaps what the Apostle Paul means. Here's another text to go, go read and wrestle with this week. Go read Romans 2:6, where it says that by well-doing and seeking for glory and honor and immortality, that God gives those eternal life, that we're to seek for glory. We're to seek for honor. We're to seek for immortality that those are the ones who receive eternal life. That these things are in just, juxtaposition with selfishness. That the most selfish men on earth are the ones that aren't looking forward to these greater rewards. To basking in and being a part of the glory of God. To living forever with Him. With hearing from His lips, well done, good and faithful servant. That those are going to be the most useful saints you could ever imagine. But that not only was this the motivator for the saints. Not only was this the motivator for Abraham and Isaac and Joseph and, and Jacob and, and, and all the rest, this was Jesus' motivation. Because you get to the end of this, and he says, Well, then how do I do this thing? How do I do it? Because I've got so much sin that's clinging to me, and I've, I've got the weight of, of earthly stuff that's clinging to me. How on earth can I run this race with endurance? How how can I run the race well? With all these people standing at the finish line, waiting on me and cheering me on and ready to receive me. It says that you look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the hand, at the right hand, of the throne of God. What was the motivator? What, what do you think the angel came to say to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? We're not told. We, we don't know exactly. What do you think that, um, uh, oh gosh, who came to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? Was it Moses and Elijah? Moses and Elijah, when, when, they, when they come down to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, I think they're saying this, the joy that sat before you, chase that, Jesus exaltation and honor and glory in a name above every other name, that that was the motivator. Ultimately, yes, to the glory of God. What did he say? I've come to bring glory to the Father, to do only that which the Father has given me to do, chasing joy. Are are you seeing it? Okay, so, so as soon as we see this, right? So my truck's veering right. I'm talking about reward, And I'm talking about joy and I'm talking about pleasure and crowns and jewels and and all the rest. And you start veering right and veering right and veering right. If we're not careful, we completely separate those things from God. Because I start talking about the rewards and, and maybe your heart's going, dude, you're talking about provision. You're talking about pleasures. I thought God was the end of it all. Doesn't the Westminster Shorter Catechism say that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever? And now you're talking about all these rewards. So how do these two things go together? And this is where I tell you, trying to keep it on the road is, is difficult, right? My, my oldest is, we drove to school. She She drove and I rode with her to school for the first time. And you know what it's like when you first... Start driving. If you look at something, you just go to it, right? You're changing lanes. You look that way, and it's just you're just going the way that you that you look, and that's the way it is with our heart, right? So we start looking at these rewards. If we're not careful, we completely disassociate them with Christ, who is our reward. But I think I I think that God has shown me how these things work together. I, I want you to think about the way that Paul speaks about. Whether we we eat or whether we drink or or whatever we do, we do it all to the glory of God. I I want you to think about Eric Little in in Chariots of Fire. What What did he say about running? He says, when I run, I feel the pleasure of God. I want you to think about what I say at the graveside of every single funeral I do when I read about the promise of the resurrection. One of the things that I say to those people is we are meant to be spiritual, spiritual beings and physical bodies. God's not done with this body. I ask you today, what's the purpose in the resurrection? Why do we need bodies? Why do we need a new heaven and a new earth? Yes, God is our reward. Christ is our riches. What we want more than anything else is him, is to be with him. Well, beloved, to be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. So why do we need a body? Why do we need a new heavens? Why do we need a new earth? Why do we need mountains to climb? Why do we need food to eat? Why do we need wine to drink? Why do we need people to do it with? If our ultimate reward is Christ, why do we need all that? Why is that the ultimate promise? Because in every single one of those things, God is giving greater expression and enhancing our enjoyment of him. Do you understand? We're not pantheists. God isn't in everything. This, this platform isn't God and you're not God. But he's expressing himself to us. He's enhancing our joy in him in, in ways that apparently otherwise wouldn't happen. Are you understanding? That the saints that are seated around the throne in heaven, we read this in Revelation and they say, how long, O Lord, before you will avenge us. And there's a clear picture there that they're longing for their bodies. They want to be clothed. They don't want to be naked. And it isn't just I don't want to be naked because I don't like not having a body. It's "I, I long for this physical body in a new place because I want my pleasure and my joy in you enhanced. It's not that we're enjoying these things absent Christ. We're enjoying Christ in these things. Chew on that one for a while, please, please. Because I'm telling you, it's radically transformative to now. As you recognize the way in which God is communicating and expressing and giving us pleasure and His glory in some of the most seemingly mundane things, if you will see Him. And so the goal then becomes about, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.18, that we would look to the things, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. So that the world around us is just, they're confused by us. Have you ever, it's a social experiment, I suppose, you ever go out to a public place and just stand there and do this? Eventually, people will get next to you and just start looking. What is is happening? What do you see that I don't see? Or, Or just get really excited sometimes. They find you, there's a spirit of anticipation and excitement and joy. Even in the middle of a time when you should be sorrowful. That you live in a way where the world's looking at you going, what do you know that I don't right now? What have you seen that I haven't seen right now? What are you looking at that I haven't looked at? With unseen things. It's it's, it's promises that in many cases we're greeting from afar. Have you ever been separated from someone that you love for some long period of time and then you go, I don't know how airports work anymore but used to, you could go to the terminal or whatever and you could see them coming and you wanted to run to them, you wanted to to embrace them, you see them coming, your joy is happening right now and you've not hugged them yet. You just see them, You, you see them from afar but it's as if they're right there already. Of course, your joy is enhanced when you hug them and you kiss them and you embrace them. But even from afar, that that's the way we live. But we don't see with the physical eyes, do we? Which brings us to the text. It's got to be the eyes of your heart. And it's, and it's got to be the work of the spirit. Spirit wrought eyes of your heart to see these things. Promises, to see the hope to which He has called us, to see the riches of His inheritance among the saints. You, you can't see it. It doesn't matter how much scripture you, you read, it doesn't matter how much you surround yourself with people like this. You can't see it unless He does this work, unless He calls you. That's the whole point to that word when He, when he says this. That he, He's got this one broad. General petition that he makes that we would just know God, know God. And, and now he breaks down these specific petitions, these things that are meant to motivate us, I'm telling you, to continue on, to press on in the faith. And he says the first of these things is he begins each of them with what are I want you to know what are what, what, what is the thing? I, I want you to know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, looking at my watch, I'm going to touch just ever so quickly on those first two, and then we will come to the power, because the power will take more time to unfold. I don't know how long, but touch very briefly, because I think that the hope and the inheritance, they go hand in hand. So he's saying here that he's called us to this hope. And this isn't just the generic gospel call that that goes out into, into all the world. This is like a king summoning his subjects. This is the kind of call that enables the thing that it commands. This is Jesus calling Lazarus to come out of the tomb. This is the call that Paul speaks about in that golden chain of redemption. He's predestined us and he's called us and he's justified us. And therefore we're going to glory that nobody falls out along the way because the call produces something. Because the power is in the voice of the one that does the calling. But that's the call he's speaking about here the kind of call that allows Jesus to guarantee that all that the Father gives me will come to me. I call and you come because you're my sheep and you hear my voice and you know. That's the picture of the calling. But I want you to listen to this. I'm going to run very quickly through some texts. You might jot them down and look at them later. All the ways that Scripture talks about this hope. The purpose and the calling. He calls it a holy calling in 2 Timothy 1, nine. He calls it a heavenly calling in Hebrews 3.1. He says that He's calling us out of darkness and into marvelous light in 1 Peter 2.9. He says that we've been called into fellowship with Christ in 1 Corinthians one nine. says that He's called us into eternal life in 1 Timothy 6.12. He says that He's called us into His own kingdom and glory in 1 Thessalonians 2.12. He says that He's called us to His own glory and excellence in 2 Peter 1.3. He says that He's called us to eternal glory in Christ in 1 Peter 5. Five ten. Now, people can get all bound up and, and anxious and, and frustrated at the fact that I would say that this call from God is irresistible and effectual, and it, and it guarantees that it's going to bring about this thing that is designed to bring about. How could you hear all that and say, "I take umbrage with that"? I'm offended that you would call me and that my heart would be irresistibly drawn to a heavenly calling. To eternal glory with Christ. But this is the calling. No wonder he calls it a hope. It's a hope. And hope, we don't use hope the way that we use, Paul doesn't use the word hope the way that we use the word hope today. I mean, I, I was driving in this morning. I was saying I hope that it stops raining before the people get to church this morning. I didn't know. It was a hope. It was a it was a, it was a wish. It was a dream. It was a I had no reason to place any real expectation in this. I, I certainly wouldn't have grounded my my life in this. That's not at all the way that he uses the word hope. Yes, hope is unseen. Not yet fully realized that it requires faith and it requires the eyes of our heart to be enlightened, have any hope of grasping it. But it's in no way in doubt or insecure There's there's never a question as to whether we would receive it. Now, the problem does come when we believe that hope just means anything that we want to lump into that basket called hope. When hope amounts to whatever your little pea brain can dream up, then yeah, you've got no grounding for that. But when your hope is the hope that Christ calls you to, when your hope is in the promises of God and the promises of Scripture, then yes, there's an assurance of this thing. There's a guarantee of this thing. What is Peter say that God has called us to this, this unfading and this, this, this thing we can't lose, this guaranteed inheritance. But that's the picture of this hope to which he has called us, to treasures laid up in heaven. Nobody can rob heaven. What did David read earlier? He says that when God made promises to Abraham, he wanted to swear by something that you, you can't lie on. What is he going to swear on other than himself? But it's not just the fact that God has promised by his own name. It's the fact that he says those promises are now kept behind the curtain. Who's going to break into the holy of holies and steal your hope and steal these promises? And so it's it's nothing like the hopes and dreams of this world. It's the hope that's grounded in the person and the promises and the power of Christ. And the reason this matters so much is because the way that you run is going to be directly tied to your confidence in, in this reward. You, you watch a football game and you can almost watch a team as they, the clock ticks down and they realize that victory is getting further and further out of reach. Their effort just plummets. But when you have a sure and steadfast confidence in the hopes And the promises and the inheritance that God has laid out for you. You run with purpose and you run with endurance and you you do shed weight. You do flee from sin because you know that thing's waiting on me. That thing's been guaranteed by Christ. And just very briefly, he ties us together with the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And we've already talked about inheritance back in verses 11 and verses 14 of this very same text and there's room for all kinds of debate about who's the one getting something here when it says his inheritance it seems almost guaranteed that what he's talking about is we are his portion he speaks like that all throughout the old testament that jacob is god's portion we as his people that we are his inheritance but at the same time scripture talks about the fact That he is our portion, that he is our heritage and he is our inheritance. And we see these twin truths running side by side with every single administration of the covenant of grace. Every time God would would strike a covenant with his people, he would look to them and say, the end of this thing is I am your God and you are my people. So either way that you look at this text, whether it's we get something in God or he gets something in us, either way, you're not thinking unbiblical thoughts. But, but when you just follow the flow of argument that Paul seems to be making here, and when you look at the parallel in the book of Colossians, it seems clear that he's talking about our inheritance, the thing that we receive as his saints. Colossians 1.12 says that he gives thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. In light, so that when it speaks about his glorious inheritance, he's speaking in the same way that he speaks about his power or his might. It's his inheritance that he's giving to us. We receive this as a heritage, as joint heirs with Christ because of what he has done, not at all because of anything that we have done. And so much meat on this bone. My last point, my last point, I promise. This, this hope that is guaranteed, this hope that is promised, this inheritance, this rich, lavish inheritance that is ours. I want you to notice that he talks about it as being in the saints. Beloved, God will not allow me to shake loose of this recurring theme, this drumbeat that runs all throughout Scripture, but, it, but especially in this book of Ephesians, that God saves men individually, but he doesn't save them unto themselves. He brings you into a body that, that he has promised his son an inheritance, a bride, a church, a body, and it is made up of all the believers. That we receive these rewards. This, this isn't that, Miss Teresa, you get your present from God and you run over in the corner and you open it and you go, look what I got, a new bike. And then David, you get yours, and you're right over there. Look, well, he got me a gold watch. He said, we're all together rejoicing in this. That's his plan. That's always been his plan. He's building a people made up of individual people, but a people that we together are his heritage. We together are inheriting this thing. And therefore, it's necessary that we spur each other on. If somebody had told me that after church today there was going to be a man out there handing out million-dollar checks, and I knew which ones of you had your name on one of those checks, I'd I'd be making some looks at you. There, and I you know what's waiting on us. You know it's waiting on. And I'd be stay awake, stay awake. Don't forget. Don't stop. Don't fall asleep in the hall. Ho- Go. Keep going. Keep going. That's meant to be the thing that we're looking to each other. We're going, there's a halt there and it's guaranteed. And it, you didn't earn it. I didn't earn it. But it's both of ours. Let's go, man. And then you get distracted or I, I get distracted or discouraged or start to doubt that the man is actually out there. And you look at me and go, no, man, it's real. It's real. But that's what he's, he's doing with us. That There's going to be times when you're going to have to grab my head because I'm looking at the slot. You're going to have to grab my head and go, Look, man! Look, Just look at it. There's times when something's going to be hurting. and in, in, in my body, there's something hurting in my mind and in my soul. You're going to have to come along and you know, go, but this is, the, this is the thing that waits for you. This is the thing he's working out right now. Father God, we praise you. And we thank you. And I, uh, I love your people. I love your word. I, I love... Your promises. God, just help us to see it, please. Help us to see it and to believe it and to trust in it and to give our whole lives to chasing it. True joy, true satisfaction, true pleasures in you. Father, don't allow us to settle. God, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.